If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 49, second to last book there, or chapter, I'm sorry, second to last chapter in the first book of the Bible, uh, Genesis 49. So we have two Sundays left in the book of Genesis, which will mean that over the course of two different series, we as a church, some of you are here for all of it, many of you were not, but we've gone from Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis 50. Um, and so we've covered a good chunk of the book of Genesis and just recently studying um, the lives of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Joseph. And so we will wrap that up this Sunday and next Sunday. Um, then I will be in Pennsylvania teaching at a retreat and Trevor's going to preach for us. Um, and then in October and into November, my hope is to take four Sundays and try to think about what does the Bible say about politics and government? There's a couple key passages that I want us to look at and think about that. But then also just think about our hearts as Christians. How do we respond to the different issues? Um, not taking individual issues on, but trying to get a big picture of what is the heart of a believer and what's a sort of a rubric that we can look at all these issues that are, we face in our world. How do we respond as followers of Jesus? So um hope that's engaging and I hope it causes you to Pray for me, because that's a difficult topic to tackle. But um, I think it will lead us well to respond well as the election comes, but also to pray well, um, which is what we need to do most at this moment. So, But for this morning, we're in Genesis 49. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at two of three final speeches from Jacob just before his death. So you remember Jacob and all of his children are now in Egypt, Joseph has rescued them, and they are there, and he's he's coming to the end of his life, and he has these sort of three final speeches. The first was about where he would be buried. The second was about the adoption of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and the act of giving Joseph the double portion of blessing. And so in both of these, Joseph has been the main audience. But when we look at Genesis 49, if you look at verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So in verses 1 and 2, Jacob calls not just Joseph, but all 12 of his sons together. And he tells them to, to gather around and to listen to him so that he can tell them what will happen in days to come. His, his words that follow then, they, they contain some blessing, but they're not the same as when Joseph, or as when he blesses Joseph's sons. They're focused more on telling of, of what will be true of these twelve sons in the future. And so as we'll read through it, we'll see that he names each son individually and tells them what is going to come in their lives. And not just them as individuals, but also the, the tribes that are going to be formed from them, the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, many of the statements in this chapter, in fact, look forward to the settling of the promised land that will come in the book of Joshua. And if, if we're right about the placement of when this book was received, it would have been received just before the children of Israel went into the promised land. And so these promises that look forward to that settling of the land would have been very important to them. Now, they, these words, they, they speak about the future, but they don't seem to hold the same weight as, as prophetic um, words that are typically throughout Scripture. So prophetic words that, that, that predict exact things that will happen. 
Um, John Walton says this, it would not have been viewed, talking about this chapter and the words that he says, it would not have been viewed as prediction as much as a determination of individual and tribal destiny. Just as the giving of a name was believed to have some role in determining the destiny of an individual, so these pronouncements were taken seriously. Um, so you might think about how as a parent or maybe as an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent you see in a young child or a teenager, you see potential for certain future endeavors. Or, or you might predict the job that they're going to take or the, the type of person that they will marry or even some choice that they will make in the future. You know them well. You know their, their personality. You know their, their history. And so you can speak about what is going to come in the future for them. When I was young, my older sister always told me, oh, Andy, you're going to be a pastor. I don't know if she meant that as a compliment or not, but that's what she would say. Um, and I'll never forget when we told my grandma Nelson that Andrea was pregnant with Elaine. We told her, you remember what she said? She said, I knew. <laughs> she's a very soft-spoken West Virginia woman, and she just said, I knew. And she probably did. I don't know. Now, I think what Jacob's saying here has a little bit more weight than those things that we would say, but it kind of gives you a flavor um, for what is happening. Um, add to that, though, as we read through this, the fact that this is said in, in within a close-knit family. Um, and some of it is a little obscure, and some of it's a little bit confusing, especially the shorter statements. There's real, just kind of brief statements about some of the sons, and there's actually a lot of debate about what that imagery means, um, what the statements mean. Some of that definitely has to do with the distance of time. It has to do with the distance of culture and, and understanding what those words mean. But some of it, I think, might be the family element. Um, there's things that I can say in my household, and my wife and my children know exactly what I mean, and you guys would have no clue what we're talking about. Uh, we have history. Andrew and I have been married now for over 13 years, and there are phrases, there are words mostly invented by her, um, that make sense to us, but they would make no sense to you. And I wonder if there's some of that going on here, that when Jacob says a statement, you know, Zebulun knows exactly what he means, because they have history. Uh, there's the sense then that Jacob has a foot in the past, and he has a foot in the, the future as he sort of stands in this present moment just before his death. He considers his sons. He thinks about who have they have been and, and what they have done. And then he foretells what they and their descendants will do and, and who they will be. But there's also this divine element of grace that's present, that their past actions don't seal their, their fate. And so putting that all together, here's what I think the, the, big, the big point that I want us to take away this morning from chapter 49 is this. What we do matters, but what God can do matters more. So what we do matters, but what God can do matters more. What we do, the, the decisions we make, are significant. Uh, we need to consider our present choices and decisions. We need to learn from past mistakes and failure. We need to identify who we are. We need to know our personality. We need to know the way that God has made us. We need to know our strengths and our weaknesses. But we also need to remember that God is able to overcome even the ugliest things that we have done in the past. We need to know that he can make something beautiful out of our lives, that he is greater than our personality, and that any good in us is evidence of, of his grace. So what we do in this life, it matters. It has significance. But what God can do matters so much more. So I want to read these final words. These are the final words of Jacob given to his 12 sons. And we'll read Genesis 49 
verses 1 through 28. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Oh, I'm sorry. I already read that. But I want to say this because so, it's a long passage. <laughs> to think about a couple things. One, uh, notice who's highlighted. There's a few people that, are, that kind of rise to the top that are uh, spoken about more. And the second is the animal imagery that's present throughout. It's really interesting. It's almost as if these sons are they're like given their mascot. Here's the mascot for your tribe, as it were, and that that is significant. So as we read through, just so you have some sort of framework to think about the passage from, we'll go from there. Okay, verse 2. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And the prey, my son, you have gone up. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your fathers, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then look at verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, 
he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, as we read that, it should be fairly obvious. And if you've been with us throughout this study, it's not surprising who receives more words of blessing and prediction. We see, obviously, that Judah and Joseph rise to the top. But also we notice Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. There are significant things that are said about them. And so we're going to focus on those five uh, individuals this morning, in part because that seems to be what the text wants us to focus on, but also because those short statements are a little more obscure. They're more obscure stories uh, within the text, and it's hard to know exactly what some of them mean. Um, we, In part, we can understand, we know what's said to Reuben because we know something about Reuben. We don't know much about Zebulun, so when we read it, we don't really know exactly what some of that is communicating. Uh, we could spend a couple weeks, we could just kind of go through and dissect everything, but I don't know that we need to do that. Instead, I just want us to consider these five. But but before we do that, just to think about the fact that all 12 sons are named individually. Um, thinking about that, I think we we see this. All have a part in God's unfolding plan. All meaning not just them, but, but us too. All, all people have a part in God's unfolding plan, uh, named by name. Now, from the beginning of the Joseph narrative, there was sort of this this struggle. The brothers have had an issue about their role in that particular plan. Joseph talked about them bowing down to him, and their reaction was not to think about how God might use Joseph in some unique way for his greater glory and for their good, maybe to save them someday, but rather they were jealous. They were mad at Joseph. And not just mad at Joseph, but also jealous of his role in the unfolding plan of God. But their jealousy didn't really change the plan, did it? Now, not everything stated here is positive, even though all these brothers are part of God's covenant people. And so I'm not sure how hard to to press this, except to say that that God knows you, and he knows the specific plans that he has for you. Um, if you are his son or his daughter by faith, his his plans are for your good, and they are for his glory. They, they may not be what you expect. They may not be what you desire. They may be more than you expect or desire. They could be significant less than you desire, but they are plans that we are all a part of God's family. It's football season. We're all part of God's team, and you might be the quarterback. You might be the guy that you know, scores all the touchdowns, makes all the big plays. You might be the left offensive tackle that nobody knows about except when he messes up. You might be the water boy, um, but you're on the team, and you're significant, and your steps are ordered by the Lord. And I just find it interesting that these 12 guys, their names are preserved. Thousands of years later, we not, may not know much about Naphtali, but we know his name. And we know that he was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, blessed by God in a unique way. People may know our names. People may never know our names. The important thing is that God knows our names. He has specific plans for you. He knows the purposes. That's just sort of a general comment about all 12. But now look at, looking at the five individuals that are highlighted, we'll, we'll start by looking at Reuben, Simeon, and Levi just sort of as a whole. And I think these three guys teach us this sobering lesson, again, we're thinking about this big idea, what we do matters, but what God can do matters more. And these three guys teach us past sins have 
future consequences. Past sins have future consequences. Of all that Jacob says, the words that he gives to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi let us know that that these pronouncements don't fall into some general category of, of blessing. They teach us that the choices that we make now can have dramatic effects in our present and on into the future. Consider Reuben. Jacob begins, he calls him his firstborn, saying that such a position meant that he was filled with unique might and unique strength, that he was destined to be preeminent in dignity and power. That was, that was his right for the taking. But then it says that he would not be preeminent. Why? Because he was unstable as water. Jacob tells us what we have seen, namely that Reuben was impulsive. He was unpredictable. And Jacob says that the clearest example of his instability was when he defiled his father's bed. It's just a simple statement in Genesis 35:22. It says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And obviously Israel remembered it. That act of Reuben seems strange to us. Why would he do that? But it was probably intended as some means of, of securing the right of secession in that family, of, of securing what was already his. But instead of securing, what did it do? It disqualified him from having that role. You look at Reuben and he always seemed to be grasping for power and for leadership but never getting it and doing it in the wrong ways. We, we watch as he continually tries to take a leadership role amongst his brothers. He seeks to be preeminent, but he is continually rejected as a leader because of his instability and impulsiveness. You know how you know if you're a leader? You turn around and is anyone following you? And Reuben kept trying to be a leader, but no one ever followed him. That's what marked him for the rest of his life. Later on in 1 Chronicles 5, all the descendants are being listed. And it reads this in First Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Now it's going to list them. But before it does that, it gives this parenthetical mark. For he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son, though Judah became strong among his brothers, and the chief came from him, yet the birthright belongs to Joseph. Reuben is remembered not as preeminent, but as impetuous and reckless. And this is how we, thousands of years later, remember Reuben for that one choice that he made. Simeon and Levi are mentioned next. They're mentioned together, it says, because they were brothers. Of course, all 12 are brothers, right? But there obviously is some unique bond between these two sons of Leah. In his prediction, Jacob highlights their violence and their anger, specifically referring to the incident involving their sister Dinah. We read that back in chapter 34, if you remember that. You remember how Shechem humiliated and violated Dinah and then asked to marry her. And these brothers, Simeon and Levi, um, said that he could, under the stipulation that they and the whole tribe was circumcised, and then they used that moment when they were in pain as a means of gaining advantage over them and slaughtering the whole tribe. And because of that anger, they are not rewarded in any significant way. In fact, Jacob says at the end there, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. means they will be divided in the future, in the settling. Alan Ross says, 
Simeon was later swallowed up in the tribe of Judah, and Levi received an honorable dispersion as the priestly tribe, but they are dispersed in the land. So think about these three guys, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. They each made decisions. They made rash, impulsive decisions that were driven by appetites of power, of sex, and of vengeance. And those decisions had lasting effects throughout their lives and in all the generations that followed them. In the end, their their character spilled over in these moments of passion, and it sealed their fate for them and for all those that would follow after them. Now, should that not be sobering to us, the fact that our decisions today could become what define us and define all the generations that follow after us. I think about Reuben. He longed for for leadership, but an impulsive, lustful decision totally disqualified him. How often do we see that in our own day? How often do we sadly see that within our own Christian communities? People grasp for leadership in illegitimate ways. Leaders who give in to lust and then destroy their ministry. I'd say there's, you know, there's people who desire to be leaders in the church or maybe even being preparing for ministry. You should consider Reuben. I should consider Reuben, who should have been preeminent. He should have been preeminent in dignity and power. He, he had a calling on his life. He was gifted. But he was displaced by the sons of Joseph. Why? Because of one decision. You should all consider how... How lust, whether it's for power or for sex or for anything else, can stain our entire lives and can stain the lives of all who would follow after us. And don't forget Simeon and Levi. They made this rash decision in a moment of anger. Should their sister have been defended? A hundred percent, yes. But their actions, they took justice into their own hands and they destroyed their future. They were marked as people with uncontrollable wrath. They were those who used the sign of the covenant as a means of taking advantage of other people. Anger, moments of impulsiveness and wrath can destroy our lives. How many people sit in prison or have had their lives completely derailed because of a moment of passion? Just one decision of wrath and anger. How many of us have words and actions that are still ingrained in our minds, things that we said in anger that have shaped our relationships into the future. Our past decisions have future consequences. Lust, anger, impulsiveness, taking matters into our own hands and not trusting the timing or the justice of God. The consequences of these actions can echo into the future of our lives and into the future of the lives that follow after us. Reuben and Simeon and Levi, they are reminders that what we do matters. Past sins have Future consequences. So what's your response to that? Are you paranoid? Do you now live in fear? What if I do something stupid like that? I destroy my life. I destroy my whole family's future. You're, you're, you're paralyzed by fear. Maybe you would be paralyzed. You would say you would despair. You would say it's too late for you. You know, I already made that decision long ago, and I'm feeling its effects right now. And it will never change. Or maybe your response is to say, this will not happen to me. 
I will make sure it doesn't happen to me. I resolve never to do something like that. I think all those responses, fear of failing, despair at having failed, or or pride in saying I will never fail, those are all wrong responses. Don't respond that way to this. And I think Judah and Joseph are going to help us see a different way to respond to the fact that what we do has consequences. I'm so thankful for Judah. Judah has 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 come to be one of my new favorite Old Testament characters. I love Judah. And this is what Judah and 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 Jacob's words to Judah tell us. Our failures do not have the final say on our future. Our failures do not have the final say on our future. I feel like that could be in some sort of self-help book. <laughs> but notice, but I want you to see how God's grace is, is the key to this. So the dominoes are all following, falling in Jacob's family. Reuben, he sleeps with his father's wife, disqualified. Simeon and Levi, they act out in cruel and fierce anger. So they're disqualified. Who's next in line? Judah. Well, Judah... I mean, he's squeaky clean, so he's obviously going to be the guy that's blessed. <laughs> Wrong. Judah Judah's the guy that suggests selling Joseph into slavery. Judah's the guy that has two sons who are killed directly by God, probably because they learned about this desire to have lust and gratification without responsibility. They probably learned that from their dad, and then they acted out on it and were killed by God. Judah's the guy who denies justice to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who then dresses as a prostitute because she knows that Judah will go into her, so that Judah ends up having twin sons through his daughter-in-law. And in light of all that, the assumption would be that Judah is also disqualified, that these dominoes are going to continue to fall. It's going to go Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi, then Judah, and they're going to keep going until who? Joseph, obviously. But then you read in verses 8 through 10, this is what Jacob says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Unlike Reuben, Judah will have preeminence. He will stand on the neck of his enemies. Just picture that. It's a, it's, it's a picture of, of enemies being in complete submission to him. Twice it says that he will have preeminence over his brothers. He is placed alongside Joseph. What was, the, what was the dream that Joseph had? That his brothers would bow down to him. And what does Jacob say about Joseph? Your brothers will bow down before you. He's put on par with Joseph. In fact, he's soon going to replace Joseph as the preeminent son. We read that in First Chronicles 5. Joseph had the birthright, but Judah would be the preeminent one in the future. Joseph would fade. Judah would endure. He would rise to be the lion of Judah. The kings of Israel are going to come from Judah. And not just kings. The king. The lion from the tribe of Judah. The scepter, it says, the, the ruling scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet until tribute comes to him. 
In other words, the, and the obedience of all people. In other words, the, these verses are looking towards the, the coming of the Messiah when he would bring salvation. But also the, the coming day when he would rule completely. The picture of, of this binding of a donkey to a choice vine probably has the imagery that, that you could leave your donkey anywhere you want. Pick the worst end of town. Leave your donkey there. No one will harm it. That's what the new kingdom will be like. Then it says he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. We don't wash our clothes in wine, one, because they wouldn't get clean, but two, because wine is expensive. And the picture here is of abundance and is of blessing and is of joy. And that's what the Messiah will bring. What's the first miracle Jesus does in Cana, in John? He turns water into wine. Just something common becomes something expensive and is this beauty of, of blessing and joy in the kingdom. This description of eyes darker than wine, teeth whiter than milk, it's speaking of the, the kindness and the purity of, of the Messiah. He would be a lion, but he'd be a lamb. He would come to conquer, but he would be the friend of sinners. He'd be a, a guy that children just love to come up to. And these words of of Jacob to Judah play out throughout the rest of Scripture as we look towards the coming of the Messiah. And as we come to the close of the book of Genesis, with these words, you know what happens? The seed is preserved. Do you remember that, that theme throughout, the threat to the seed? You always wonder, will it survive? Will God's plan be thwarted by the, the foolish decisions of, of people or by the evil of others? And we find here that the seed has been preserved and the seed will be preserved through Judah. What a mercy to Judah. This is undeserved kindness to a notorious sinner. I read one commentary and it seemed to say that Judah later showed some sort of obedience and, and that's why he receives this. I don't think it's obedience. I think it's repentance. I think, I think Judah in the end, he, he comes to, he, he comes to, to show us that, that sins have consequences, but the blessing here reminds us that our failures don't have the final say in our lives, that God delights to forgive. He delights to restore who? People who repent. People who will turn. So go back to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi and those different responses, okay? If you look at Reuben and Simeon and Levi and you say, I'm scared, I fear that I will fall just like them, then look to Judah and know that there is mercy, that we will fall just like Judah did. But there is hope for mercy. If you look at them in despair and you say, I've already fallen. I've fallen too far. There is no hope. The consequences are set for me. Then look at Judah and see how far he fell. And yet God showed him so much mercy. And if you look at them, if you look at Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and you think in pride, I will not be like them. I'm just going to try really hard to not be like them. Know that you will fail. The, the whole reason that they failed is because they were relying on themselves. We need to, to look at them and take seriously the fact that what we do matters. And then we need to consider Judah and see that what God can do matters so much more. Judah failed just as miserably as his brothers. But he renounced his own strength. And therefore he found mercy. So our response should not be fear. 
It should not be despair. It should not be pride. But it should be faith. It should be hope. It should be humility, trusting that God will show us mercy. We need mercy. And we look for mercy. And as we look for it, we need to look from Judah to the one who would come from Judah, to the words that are here that are speaking of the one who would come, of the Messiah. We look forward to the day when when his kingdom will be established, a kingdom of peace and joy and love. And that kingdom is possible only because he be, he came first. And when he came first, he didn't come as a lion, did he? What did John call him? John the Baptist, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We are sinners all, just like all twelve of Jacob's sons. And our sin deserves death. So Jesus comes as the Lamb to take the penalty of our sin upon himself so that we can be forgiven. So that all who would come to Christ in faith would see the consequences of our sin, that they are death. But we would also see that our failures don't have the final say, but that the cross can have the final say. That God is the final say, and in Christ he says, you are forgiven because of the death and the resurrection of my son. The Christian life from beginning to end is a life and a walk of faith. And we can do nothing apart from Jesus. And he can take anything and everything that we have done, all of the ways that we have failed, and he can bring mercy and peace and forgiveness into that. And as we then know forgiveness, we, we learn how to walk in a way that would please God. I think that's the blessing of Joseph and the reminder of Joseph that we don't have to go down the path of Judah. We, we can go down a path of obedience. And if we have gone down the path of Judah, then we can start walking in the way that, that Joseph walked. You look at the words that, that Jacob speaks over Joseph beginning in verse 22. And, and here's what I think we learn from those words. God's goodness and loving kindness pursues those who are his. God's goodness and his loving kindness, it it pursues, it chases after those who are his, like Joseph. There's difficulty in those first words. Joseph is a fruitful bough. Some translated actually that um, he's a wild donkey. It's hard to know exactly what is here. Um, what it means. But the the clear description is of Joseph being attacked. He's attacked bitterly in verse 24 um, by his enemies. But he is preserved. God preserves him and blesses him in the midst of trial. Isn't that a great description of Joseph's life? And then there are blessings pronounced in verses 26, um, verses 25 and, and 26. Um there are blessings as high as the heavens. And you see there in, in, in verse 25, with blessings from heaven above, then blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings as deep as the deepest part of the earth. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. Blessings of, of family is what that's saying. Blessings, um, Jacob says, extending to the everlasting hills in verse 26. Joseph reminds us of, of the goodness and the loving kindness of God that pursues his children all of their days. It reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That God, when we are attacked, will keep us unmoved. He will keep us agile, even in those moments. We have the promise of blessing in this life and in 
the life to come. So Joseph stands at the end as this man of faith, a man who trusted God's hand and sought God's presence, whether he was in the pit or whether he was in the palace. And he went through pain and he went through difficulty and he walked in holiness and purity. He lived before the face of God. That's not to say that he was saved because of his own righteousness. No, all of this was a blessing from the hand of God. But he does show us the blessing that comes when we would walk with God in all circumstances of life, through trials and through blessings. Judah shows us the blessing of God's mercy. Then Joseph calls us, having experienced God's mercy, to walk in faith, to walk in trust, to know the blessing of living before the face of God all of our days. We don't want to be like Reuben and Simeon and Levi, who never repented and whose sins had consequences into their future. We want to be like Judah, that we would recognize our sin, that we would see how we have failed, and we would call out to God for mercy. And then we want to be like Joseph, that we would walk in faith and know the blessings of God that come in whatever circumstance of life that we are in. So friends, brothers and sisters, what we do matters. The decisions that we're going to make today and this week and for the rest of our lives, it matters. Our sins and our failures can have a deep effect on our lives and on the lives of all the people who come after us. But in light of that, we don't need to be filled with fear. You don't need to despair if you have failed. You don't need to be prideful and trust in yourself because what God can do matters way more than anything that we have done. He takes sinners like us, like you and like me. And through his, his mercy, he exalts us. He makes us children by faith in Christ. And he pursues us all our lives with goodness and loving kindness through all the trials and all the triumphs of life. The Christian life is, is not about trying really hard to not mess up. That's not what I want you to take away. Well, I've got to really try hard to not be like Reuben and Simeon and Levi. It's a life of trusting fully in the grace of God to sinners like us and of trusting God's mercy and his goodness and his loving kindness that it will pursue us always and it will pursue us all the way to the very end of our lives. Jacob is a guy who knew what it looked like to fail and then find the mercy of God. He was a man who knew about the greatness of of God's blessing to sinners. And here he knew it even in the face of death. And God's mercy will pursue us so that even when we come to the end of our days, when we're passing blessing on to those who would follow after us, we can know that God's blessings will follow us all the way into eternity because of what Jesus has done. So don't forget, what we do matters. It can have a deep impact on our lives. But also know that what God can do through the grace of God found in Jesus, it matters so much more. And that's what we seek every day. In the midst of failure, in the midst of triumph, we look to God's grace and say, God, you are working something beautiful out of my life. In the midst of failure, in the midst of triumph, we see him. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word, and then I will pray and we will sing.
Father, where would we be without your mercy? The waves of our sin, the waves of evil in this world would overwhelm us. And yet in Christ we stand on the rock. We stand on forgiveness. We stand on grace. We stand on your mercy and know that we have hope because of what Jesus has done for us. Would help us not to live just trying to not be Reuben and not be Simeon and not be Levi. But we confess that we are them and we are Judah. Help us to be like Judah and to call out for mercy, God. To repent and believe and allow you to do more than we could ever imagine with our lives. Let us walk like Joseph before your face. Walk in faith knowing that your goodness and your loving kindness are pursuing and chasing after us all of our days and that they will chase after us all the way into eternity. Lord, we give us the right resolve to walk with you and give us the right balance of trusting that you are the one that's going to cause us to walk. I want to thank you for these men who remind us of how you work. But thank you for preserving the seed. Thank you for Judah. Thank you for Jesus. I'm praying in his name. Amen. Hear this blessing from Genesis 49. May the God of Jacob bless you with the blessings of heaven above, with the blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, and with the blessings up to the everlasting hills until the Lion of Judah returns to bless us fully with peace, joy, and his eternal presence. Amen.